Shall we? Yes. I have to, uh, so pre-warning. Can you turn me down just a little bit? I'm already excited and this is going to get dicey. Um, yeah, and, and that, that's, that's the pre-warning tonight is um, I, I'm, just, I'm just wound up tonight, okay? And so I don't know how that's going to translate. We're going to kind of see what that translates into. Um, but let, let, let me share this with you. Four and a half, five years ago, I come home and I tell my wife, I'm like, hey, babe. And my wife's Heidi, she's amazing. And uh, she's not in here right now, but you guys all please tell her that I said that later. Um, she's the best person ever. Just tell her that too, you know. And um, I came home one day, I was like, hey babe, I think God's calling us to plant a church. And uh, I don't know if you guys have ever had the moment where your wife or spouse or re- someone in a relationship with you looked at you like you were the biggest just moron ever, right? But that, that was, I mean, Heidi, um, she's very, and my little daughter, I've said this before, is very like her, but everything is like, you know, she's very practical, right? She liked her friend network. She liked her situation. And so when I came home, I was like, hey, babe, we're going to plant a church. She said, no, we're not, you know? And, and I, I learned a lot, like, about what it means to lead my wife through that time because, you know, first we wrestled, you know, and, and just kidding, we didn't do that. But um, eventually, here, eventually, here's what happened. I, I've shared this story before, but we were trying to have a baby and are talking about having a baby, which is now Avery. And um, I was communicating a double standard with her. In other words, like, I kept telling her, hey, God's going to provide for us if we plant a church. And then I would say, hey, we need to hold off on this whole baby thing because financially it's going to be chaos, so let's just wait. Well, finally, I went up in, um, to Seattle. I spent a couple hours with Driscoll uh, in his office. And pretty much after he put his boot in my face, um, back in literally, right, like, I got back on the plane and I realized um, what a pompous, arrogant, non-leading husband I had been. And so I come back home and I tell Heidi, I'm just like, hey, look, I'm sorry. I've been communicating to you this double standard that God could provide for a church, but that he couldn't provide for a family. And I said, whatever God wants us to do, let's just right now just say, God, just do your thing. And she said, let's plant a church. And, and that was just the beginning like four and a half, five years ago, and here we are, right? Like Matthias's lot, this weird name, this church that meets on Wednesday nights, and we're all here gathered. And the reason why I'm so excited tonight, in our DNA, which I don't know what that is, but I think it's like chromosomes and, orga- you know, organisms, right? Like the strands, you know, that make you up, right? In our DNA, when we were planting this church, we said, and, and being a part of Acts 29, we said, look, we want to be a church that continues to plant churches, And we don't just want to say it, like, we want to do it. We want to plant churches. Well, a year ago, we stood before you, and we welcomed in this guy named Noah Oldham, all right? And at that time, he was a stranger to all of you. But let's be honest, a year ago, it seemed so far away, you know? It was like, yeah, this will be awesome. Let's plant a church. And it's just kind of like the romanticized piece of it all. They're, They're 31 days away from launching August Gate. 31 days. And tonight, we're going to pause from 1 John, and we're going to, to, we're going to dive into this story that I've become sinfully obsessed with, which that may not be biblical, I'm not sure, if you can be sinfully obsessed with the Bible. But if, if, if you could be, I am. We're, we're going to read this story, study this story, pause from 1 John, and tonight we're going to send Noah out from this church. We're going to send him out to plant a church in Soulard, which by the way, all f- of these pictures are from Soulard and the city. And I just, I just, my, my fear is 
is that we think that church planting is just this romanticized thing, and it's, it's just going to be roses. Well, in the story that we're going to find tonight, it, it won't be, and it's not. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Know where you at. Could you stand up just right now, just so we can see you and just know where you are. There he is right there. Noah Olin. Please give it up for him. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm the king of awkward. Acts chapter 13. Now, if you haven't ever read Acts, okay, let me catch you up briefly. I can't, and, and, and here's the thing. Normally we exposit very, very deeply verse by verse, okay? We are going to exposit this, this story tonight. In other words, we're going to break it down piece by piece. But we don't have a tremendous amount of time, okay? So we're going to do our best uh, to, to glean from the Scripture the things that we need to glean. In Acts, here's what's happening. Last week we ended with the verse, John chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus says... As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Remember that? And the question was, where is he sending you? Where is he sending you? And what Acts does is it shows that Jesus is not a liar. Because what happens is this group of people, this rat pack group of apostles and disciples, listen to this, they get sent out empowered by the Spirit of God, and religion does not happen, Christianity does not happen, but the Jesus movement begins. The boys are sent and churches begin to plant and organic movements of Christ happen. Jesus is not a liar, and it's revealed throughout the, whole books of, throughout the whole book of Acts. As the Father has sent me, so now I send you. And that pretty much catches, up, uh, catches up, uh, us up to Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Here we go. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, pause, you're like, this is going to be a long night. Map, can you put the map up for me here? All right, I'm horrible at geography. Okay, here we go. Now, for, for maybe for some of you, me, maps are key, right? Because at first glance, Antioch's like in Iowa somewhere. So this helps us understand this, okay? Now, Antioch, you'll notice there, there's two. There's one up towards uh, Asia Minor up there, and there's another one right here. This is, you see the helpful parentheses starting point, okay? This is what we're talking about. The movement of Christ has spread into Gentile land, in other words, non-Jewish land, even though there are Jews living in Antioch, the movement of Christ is spreading. And so this, this uh, chapter begins with talking about the church in Antioch. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who is also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and what's the last word there? And Saul. Uh, quick note about Saul, right? Um, first of all, he wrote two-thirds or so of the New Testament. And just a few chapters before, even though he was persecuting Christians, all of a sudden this light comes down from heaven. And uh, when he's not pursuing God at all, I just want to point that out. Like God says, you, you're mine. You love that? And listen, he doesn't stop with Paul, Saul, you, you're mine. He continually shows saw what the plan of attack is going to be. And I love that. Paul's just walking on the road one day. Light comes down, and here he is. So Saul is one of these dudes, all right? Keep going to verse 2. Um, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, 
So there's five leaders in this church of Antioch, and the scripture says they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. I don't know about you, but in the great movement of Christ, I sometimes get this idea that the early believers didn't need to worship and fast and pray because they were so caught up in just the move of God. That is clearly inaccurate. You see, what the early believers believed that you and I may not is that fasting and prayer is absolutely bedrock to everything else. So, quick question of clarification. If the early church followers, including Saul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, found it a priority to fast and pray to seek the Lord's guidance, do you imagine that that should be important to us as well? So here they are, craving, being together, worshiping, fasting, and praying. And then the Holy Spirit said, which, I just pause at that, right? The Holy Spirit said, so what did that look like, you know? He had come down in tongues of fire, like this, all, you know, there's all of a sudden this image appear and it's the Holy Spirit speaking. Look, we're not sure, but we know this about the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit was indwelling in baptized believers. We've talked about the difference between baptizing the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. So you start a relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit comes down, seals you, and so all of a sudden now the Holy Spirit speaks. So whether it was a sense Maybe, maybe even a, a teaching through one of these prophets. Something happens, and the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Have you had one of those moments? Where you knew God was calling you to something? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, I mean, you just knew it. God, in fact, was setting you apart for his work. Have you ever had one of those moments? I would say this. If you're a believer in here, you have. And that's, I hope, the realization tonight. I want to set them apart for the work that they have been called to. Verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Here's the crazy thing, all right? I would imagine Saul and Barnabas, out of these five guys, were probably two of the best leaders. Probably two of the best teachers. Probably two of the best communicators, empowered by God clearly. You see what the church does? The Holy Spirit sets them apart, and the church does what? They let them go. One of the biggest dangers to church planning in America is the competitive spirit that much of the church community has. Wait, wait, wait. We can't let even these called people go. We have to keep them here and coddle them. Come here, Noah. Stay here. You're so gifted. We love you so much in your bald hair. Like, just stay here, right? No dig on you. I'm going bald too, bro. It's all good. You know what I'm saying? You just, you just cut yours different than me, you know? Anyway, that's neither here nor there. What I love about the church in Antioch is they send out two of their most gifted leaders with open arms and with open doors. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had set them apart. Listen, do you guys understand that this early church was so guided, they had their issues, mind you, but they were so guided by the Spirit that everybody just wanted the movement of Christ to continue Nobody cared about church organization or church politics or whose name would be great. People just wanted the gospel to continue to advance. 
So, so, so some people ask me, like, so Mark, why church planting? Why are you guys so interested in planting churches when you're going to have to send some of your own people out of here that's going to diminish your numbers and most importantly, diminish your tithing? Right? I've, I've heard people say this. Mark, how are you guys, guys going to do all this? I was like, hey, hey, hey. Like, it's a good thing I'm not in control. It's a good thing that we desire in this church just to follow what God is doing. And if we even for a moment think that somehow we can wrap our arms around it and hold him back, do you see the arrogance and the pompous attitude that comes from that? So listen, I just want to tell you, at this church, our hope and desire, even though at times we fail, is to humbly follow the will of God, no matter what that means, no matter what sacrifices, no matter how that makes us look, for the glory of God. Are you guys with me? This is what I see in Acts. I see this beautiful movement of Christ going. Verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. Quick note about Seleucia. Um, Okay, you see Antioch up here and then you see Seleucia. You'll notice uh, on your map when you go home and Google this because you're so interested that there is a, there's a river that connects Antioch and Seleucia. Okay? How many of you guys like boats? Any boaters in here? Okay. Um, any of you guys like water? Any water likers? More there. Good. Okay. Imagine yourself liking water, okay? Listen to this. Like, I'm not saying this is Columbus, you know, sailed the ocean blue in 19, 1452. I'm not saying that at all, you know? 92, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, listen, they're set apart for the work of God. They get on a boat without a motor, which many of you have never been on that type of boat, let's be honest. Even your little minnow, like your little fishing boat has one of those like prop trolley motors. Trolley, what's the, yeah, you guys know what I'm saying. They get on a boat and head 16 miles and then they get to the sea. Now look at this, continue on to verse 4. And from there they sail to where? What does your verse say? From there they sail to where? Okay, you guys see where Cyprus is? You see the water in between. 130 miles or so. Like some of you are trying to do the dimensions with the little corner there, right? 130 miles. Here's the deal. I think sometimes we get this romanticized picture that being sent out by God means that like everything about it is just going to come just, you know, silver platter it's completely easy. They sailed 130 miles without Dramamine. You know what I'm saying? Like, how is that possible? Have you guys ever had Dramamine before? One of the most amazing sleepy night-night drugs ever, right? But that's what they do. 130 miles, they go to Cyprus, verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, here, here's a note. The gospel has gone out. But in this... In this island of Cyprus, the gospel has yet to really go out. All right, there's pieces of it there. But like this scripture says, there are Jews that are worshiping in synagogues, and that's where they start. Well, why would they start there? Why do they start in the Jewish synagogues of all places? Why aren't they just trying to reach the pagans? The whole point is these people in the Jewish synagogues are hearing the Old Testament and not hearing that the entire Old Testament is pointing to the Messiah with 
with, with which whom they've been waiting on. And so you see that you see Saul and Barnabas come into the synagogue and they start preaching Jesus to these people. Can you imagine the rip-roaring atmosphere that that would have created? Listen, uh, if you've ever studied Paul's missionary journeys, he gets booted out of most of these cities in Asia Minor, eventually, by the Jews, not the pagans. Because he's challenging the very bedrock of their religion. I don't know what you know about St. Louis or St. Charles, right? That was a hint. We live in a predominantly Catholic culture. Now, I say all that to say this. There are tons of Jesus-believing Catholic people, and praise God. But I tell you what, there are others, just like in the Protestant church, that are following some list of rules and some religion and some ceremonious Christ experience. In Soulard, it is dominated by this Catholic culture, if any type of culture, religiously at all. And so as Noah and his team go down to Soulard, they're going in to preach to some who have just been brought up that the more you do, the better you are. The more you do, the better you are. The more you do, the better you are. Maybe some of you have heard that message too. Maybe some of you have subscribed to it. That is not the gospel. When they arrived at the Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had gone, uh, and they had um, John to assist them. Now, this is not our John from 1 John. I I'm, talk about him like he's our own, you know? This is, this is John Mark, all right? Really not that significant. He's just an assistant to Saul and Barnabas, verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, okay, another map reference. You see that? There's another 90 miles between Salamis and Paphos. So they've gone through this whole island preaching the word of God, claiming the word of God, telling people about the Lord Jesus. And listen, the gospel just keeps advancing. It's, ex it's an exciting time to be a Christian. It's also a very dicey time. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. Now, some of you are like, oh, this is going to get good. It's like the carnival. You know what I mean? It's like, this is a little, this is a little side trip here, right? Paul and Bar you know, Saul and Barnabas. All of a sudden, then there's the, you know, the elephants and the tigers and whatever else circuses have, the freak shows, right? A Jewish false prophet was this magician named Bar-Jesus. <laughs> Interesting name, eh? Now, now look, look at this. A couple things. First of all, the word magician in the Greek word is the Greek word magos. And it literally means, it comes from the same Greek word as magi in Matthew chapter 2. So let's pause for a second and say that, that this type of word isn't always associated with something negative, but in this case it clearly is. It's associated with occultish type things. This guy's name, Bar-Jesus, literally means son of salvation. How fitting here. He's a false prophet. His name's Bar-Jesus, and, and Saul and Barnabas hook up with this guy. Verse 7. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, that would be an amazing name for your son, wouldn't it? Sergius Paulus, you know, like Maximus, Ridius, Didymus, whatever his name was, right? He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. This is crazy. Listen to this. The proconsul was the highest ranking Roman official. He, he was like Pilate, okay, in the day of Jesus. Which, by the way, the day here that we're talking about is about 45 or 46 A.D., so this guy, 
summons Saul and Barnabas to come and share with him the word of God. Do you guys understand how significant that is? The most influential person in Cyprus wants Saul and Barnabas to tell him about the word of God and who shows up? Bar Jesus, right? And and, and scripture says that Bar Jesus is with him, is associated with him. Now, friends, if you're, if any of you guys like Rocky, what's your favorite Rocky? Three, you're a Rocky Four guy. Anyone else a Rocky Four guy? The Russian? Yeah. Odell, just you? Okay. Dude, I love Rocky Four. This Russian titan, like they portray him to be this eight foot tall dude. And it just portrays this battle of the titans. Can you see it in the scripture here? Bar Jesus standing in between Saul and Barnabas to share the word of God with this proconsul. Let's see what happens. Verse 8. But Elamis, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. The thing that's interesting about this passage for me is it's not just that there's an enemy out there who is trying to distract us from mission. But there's an enemy out there who's literally trying to take people's entire attention away from the gospel. Look, Saul and Barnabas get sent out into chaos. Are you guys with me? That he can get sent out into the bed of roses. That he can get sent out to buffet meals of steak and lobster, if they even had steak, I don't know. They get sent out into utter chaos. And in this moment, this demon-influenced Bar Jesus. But Saul, who was also called, what's your, what's your Bible say? Paul. This is the transition verse right here. This is it. Saul becomes Paul right here. Paul, that Roman name, there's only three other mentions after this that even call him Saul, but it's talking about previous references. This is his transformation. Watch this. This is unbelievable. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Can you picture this moment? Come on. Bar Jesus. It's just a funny name in general, right? The bar part, not the Jesus part, right? Like, quick quick clarification, right? Bar Jesus is standing there. Paul is standing there. Can you picture his eyes? Look, just picture this moment. He's looking intently at him. Why? Not because he's trying to like size him up and then they're eventually going to do a chest bump and, you know, Saul's going to like karate chop his face. No, it's not like that. This is a moment filled with the passion of God that the brother of God gets to proclaim the great gospel of this great God that he's following. Look at this. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. How would you like that greeting? You know what I'm saying? Have you ever had one of those before? You meet someone, you're like, hey, I'm Bar Jesus, you son of the devil. You know what I mean? Look at, look at this, and I want you guys to see this. This is a man right now that is so filled with zeal and calling that nothing, nothing, nothing will distract him right now. You guys understand this? This is a man that has journeyed many a mile in many a discomforting moment to get the opportunity 
to share the gospel to the most influential man in the entire island. You son of the devil, he says, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. It's so easy for us to get mortal combat with this, isn't it? You know? And, and the reason I say mortal combat is just because there's this, this focus on like the magician's type power. This is a man who's speaking the words of God. And in this moment, and we've taught on this before, miracles happen throughout Acts and the rest of the New Testament especially on the outskirts of where the gospel is going. So he says, Bar Jesus, you're going to be blind for a certain amount of time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Do you guys get that moment right there? Bar Jesus, this guy who's complete, and now he's like, hey, can you lead me by hand? Can you lead me by hand? Here's what scripture says, is God takes the wise things of this world and shows them how unwise they really are. And then look what happens. Look what happens. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Chaos, demon-influenced magician, sorcerer, and all of a sudden the proconsul of Cyprus believes in the word of God, and the gospel continues to be sent forth. An amazing story about the confident call of the Lord. I have two messages tonight, one for you and one for Noah. Let's start with you and I, shall we? I think we have this picture in our mind that church planting, this great thing that we have been called to be a part of, it's just going to be this merry-go-round of love and fun. Hey, man, you get to do your own thing. Like, finally, no people telling you what to do. No people giving you, no, no, no religious garbage. Like, you get to set your own course and your own vision. 80% of church plants fail. 80%. Church planting right now in America, although sexy, and although many people are doing it, it is by far one of the toughest things to do in any possible ministry. There are strains on the financial strains. There are family strains that no one can even begin to understand. There are strains with the very enemy against God. It is a constant battle. What I want us as a church to realize when we send Noah out tonight and later Jason, listen to this. We're not sending them out to like the parade. We're sending them in like a family sends a warrior across seas into the battle. While we are still in the battle ourselves. If this does anything for us, I hope it makes you realize that we aren't sitting in our comfortable pews now as Matthias's lot, the established church plant, which now just gets to send out churches. We are on our own battlefield, our own mission field, fighting these same wars, having some of these same strains. 
Listen to this. When the weight of church planting begins to sit on your shoulders, then maybe you'll appreciate the call to church plant a little bit more. Because I fear that many of us, even with Noah's situation, we've just kind of been like, oh, this is cool. How many of you have even talked to Noah? Have even said for a moment, hey, Noah, tell me what we need to be praying for right now. If you understood the depth of the call, you would know the need for prayer. He is getting ready to go up against things that he has no understanding of. Jeff and I, just upstairs a second ago, we were talking about the last four years here at Matthias. And I was like, bro, how do you feel? We're getting ready a month from now to all show up at the launch of our first church plant. And he said this, he said, I know that the next four years for Noah are going to be some of the most difficult years of his life. And so after all of that, you're like, so why are we doing this? If it's 80% failure, if it's strain on finances, if it's strain on family, then why would we ever want to participate in this? Here's why. Because we believe that people need the gospel, and we believe right now in St. Charles that there needs to be 50 more church plants that are missional and preaching the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because one of the things that many people will say, no, we, we don't need more church plants. There's plenty of churches. In St. Charles, no, there's not. We need 50 tomorrow. Well, how can you say that? When you just want to build your own church? This isn't about my church or your church. This is about a greater church and a greater call. And when you and I understand that as a church... We will wrap our arms around this brother and realize that he is headed into some terrible things. The scripture says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And when it's mature and complete, all of a sudden you find yourself experiencing this full joy. So the question for you and I is, is it worth it? Is it worth to set a particular amount of our budget and send that with Noah? Is it worth us as a church going down on August 30th at 6 o'clock and being there at the launch? Is it worth it for us? Or is this just another way that inside we can feel good about what we're doing as a church? Matthias' lot, Saul and Barnabas get sent out by a church and they go into chaos and what happens? the most influential Roman official sees the power of Christ and God opens his eyes and the gospel moves forward. Can you get that picture? 